there would be would have been no way for people outside of research universities like Stanford to make a contribution to the science. Now they can make a contribution that's extraordinarily meaningful and they may have never set foot on the campus of a university. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists, deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today we have Dr. Lloyd Miner with us on the show. He is an ENT surgeon by training, scientist, innovator, and currently dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. We recorded this episode on March 10th of 2020 to talk about Dr. Miner's new book, Discovering Precision Health, just released last month. Amazingly, not once did we even mention the COVID-19 pandemic. To illustrate just how things rapidly changed after that, Dr. Miner was on CNN just five days later talking about nothing but the pandemic. In just a few short weeks, we are truly in a different world. What our world will look like in the months and years to come will no doubt be shaped by many of the scientists, researchers, and innovators Dr. Miner explores in his book. As a leader of one of the nation's top medical schools located right in the heart of Silicon Valley, Dr. Miner has a unique lens on medicine's innovation pipeline and what's coming around the corner. So if you're interested in seeing what's coming around the corner, or if you just need a little dose of optimism right now, you're going to enjoy this episode, and we definitely recommend getting your hands on his book. With that said, let's get started. Lloyd, welcome to the show. We are absolutely thrilled to have you today. Thank you, Colin. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. So you have a new book that just came out, actually, I think it's last week. So this is March of 2020 here, and... It's a tour de force. There's a, more than we're going to cover in an hour, but that's why I encourage people right now, go out and get your book. A lot of things to talk about. I, th- I thought it'd be interesting to, to start, though, with your childhood. You, you mentioned this in the book, and you, uh, in a way, got kind of a front row seat to history. Give us an idea. We'll just put it in the time and place here where you were in junior high, and tell us a little bit about what was going on. Certainly. Well, 1971 was the year that in Little Rock and in many uh, school districts throughout the South and other parts of the country, court-ordered busing began in order to desegregate the schools. Brown versus the Board of Education back in the uh, early 1950s had ruled that segregation by law was illegal, but for all intents and purposes, uh, the schools in Little Rock and many other cities across the country remained segregated because the school kids went to schools in their neighborhoods and the neighborhoods by and large were segregated. So in 1971, I boarded a bus um, from where I lived um, and uh, rode across town to Paul Lawrence Dunbar Junior High School. I was entering ninth grade. And uh, I saw firsthand that what I'd always been told was separate but equal was separate, but it certainly was not equal. And uh, you know how there's some experiences in your life where the moment the day really stands out in your mind, and, and that day stands out in my mind because uh, the school, uh, the plaster was peeling from the walls, the banisters were missing from the stairwells, uh, the library had very few few books, and uh, you know these were the bitter fruits of racial prejudice. 
And it led me really as a as a kid, and and I also have to say the other kids who were in the school, black and white, I think we really had, and I hope still have, uh, an enthusiasm about what um, what a more inclusive society can look like, and what um, a diverse and integrated society uh, where everyone has opportunity, where meritocracy can really really be the rule of the day. Uh, what that would be like, and um, that, uh, that that shaped my approach to leadership and my thinking about how I can have impact in the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking at you know pictures of your high school, and we all have—I mean, we're all familiar with this high school, Little Rock High. You know, we think of the Little Rock Nine, the children being walked in, the National Guard there, Eisenhower sending in troops. I mean, it's um, looking at the picture of the school. It's actually a really beautiful building too. I mean, it was. Um, probably one of the most expensive high schools in the country when it was built, right? It's a beautiful high school. It really is, uh, was then, is today. I was at Dunbar Junior High for one year. That was back when ninth grade still was in the junior high. And then in 10th grade, I went to Central High and graduated uh, from Central High um, and uh, have many, many fond memories of the people and the experiences that I had uh, in the public schools. Well, let's uh, fast forward quite a bit because we only have an hour today. Uh, you know, we're going to talk a lot about innovation. Stanford is right in the middle of it. It's right in the middle of Silicon Valley. So you've got an interesting position and lens on a lot of things happening right now. But you're an innovator yourself. Just give us an idea. I mean, you are a clinician, a surgeon. Tell us about your background very quickly and tell us a little bit about one of the treatments that you actually developed yourself. Yes, I in high school, I became interested in math and science. I liked the clarity of, uh, of thought that comes with more quantitative rigor. And um, I also really could see even, even then that it would be possible to make biology and biomedicine you know, more quantitative than it has been in the past. And that guided me through you know, my undergraduate experience and as a junior undergrad at Brown, I took a bioengineering course uh, that used mathematical models to show how relatively straightforward uh, mathematical approaches and models can be used not just to describe physiological systems, but really to understand them, to state hypotheses, to design experiments, and to interpret data. And I thought that was really elegant, and I read the papers of the person who later became my mentor at the University of Chicago, Jay Goldberg. And um, I decided, well, I'd really like to work in this field. I knew I wanted to uh, go to medical school and become a doctor, uh, but I wanted to combine doing science in the way the balance system works, uh, the inner ear sense of balance, with a clinical career. And then after medical school, um, I spent you know, a couple of years doing my core residency in general surgery, and then four years as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Chicago in the lab of Jay Goldberg. Then did my ENT residency at Chicago for four years, and then at Vanderbilt for a year for a, a, a surgical fellowship uh, in ear surgery and what's called lateral skull-based surgery. That was 11 years after uh, graduating from medical school. It caused my wife to wonder if I was going to qualify for Social Security before I got a real job. But <laughs> I, I finally did get a real job as an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins. And my career really began to come together pretty quickly. It was the first time 
when I joined the faculty that I could really do research and uh, be involved in clinical practice, seeing patients doing surgery. And that was was really energizing. It was what I had trained for for so long, and I really enjoyed it. And um, as you mentioned, in 1995, so I joined the faculty at Hopkins in 93, the fall of 93, and then in 95, I, I saw a couple of patients that had a bizarre set of symptoms. They complained that when they heard loud noises in their ear, usually one ear rather than the other, when they heard loud noises, it caused them to be dizzy. And sometimes they would even say, you know, when I hear loud noise, I can see things move. They oftentimes heard their voice too loudly in the affected ear. And the very first patient that I saw said, look, if you just play this particular tone, it was about a 500 hertz tone, to my right ear, I can make my eyes move, I'll show you. And so I did. That was back in the days where we used to dictate notes. So I had my little dictaphone. I recorded a tone, put it up to his ear, and sure enough, his eyes moved in a very predictable and very definite way. It wasn't a random eye movement. It was a very specific eye movement. And I could see from the research I'd done that that eye movement related to one of the inner ear balance canals. We have these three balance canals in the inner ear that respond to angular motion and they act like gyroscopes. They tell the brain how the head is moving in space and they're exquisitely accurate. And his eyes were moving in the plane of the top balance canal. And then the question was, why, why is that? You know, Why would a noise cause his eyes to move in the plane of that balance canal? And we knew from a lot of work that had been done over many years um, prior to me entering the field and some that I had done, that there was a relationship between the balance canals and eye movements and that the eyes move when a balance canal is stimulated, the eyes move in the plane of that canal. And the reason that is the case is that when you and I are riding a bike or we're running or doing anything that causes our head to move up and down, when we need to look at something like a road sign when we're riding a bike or um, even the sort of small oscillations of our head that or caused by our, our pulse, we're still able to look at something in the environment and keep it stable uh, on, on the retina. And the reason we're able to do that is we have a reflex that causes our eyes to move in the opposite direction of our head. And that reflex, I had studied it, others had studied it. So I could tell that there was something causing that top balance canal to be activated by sound. And we reasoned that one reason might be that there was the bone that should cover the balance canal was missing because if the bone was missing, then sound could travel not only through the cochlea, the hearing organ, but sound, which is a mechanical wave in the inner ear, could also travel through the balance canal. And that if that were the case, then the balance canal would be activated by sound. We worked with some colleagues in radiology to develop some, at that, at that time, specialized CT imaging techniques to show that yes, indeed, the bone was missing. And then I developed a surgical procedure to correct it. And we published the first paper describing the disorder and the surgical procedure in 1998. And that's now a fairly commonly done procedure among uh, people who are specialized in my field of, um, of ear surgery. And it's been gratifying. It's not the most common cause of, of a balance disorder uh, by any means, but it's also not incredibly rare. And it's been gratifying to know that uh, the science I did actually helped to describe a new syndrome and develop a surgical procedure to fix it. 
And um, I've, I've, of course, I, I no longer do that surgery. It's the type of thing that if you're not doing it regularly, you really shouldn't be doing it. And as I moved into other leadership roles, uh, I, I stopped operating uh, in, in that, I stopped operating as, as the primary surgeon. But my colleagues in the field are, are very experienced with doing the surgery. And, you know, it's helped hundreds of people, which is, is gratifying. Yeah, I have no doubt that is. And, you know, no matter how small the patient population is, it's everything to those people who have. Totally, totally. And, and, and you know, not everyone needs to have surgery. Uh, some people, once they know what's going on and they avoid loud noises, they're able to live with the symptoms just fine. And um, but knowing what it is was really, really important. The very first patient that uh, I saw, the man that I described who had the big eye movements, he actually had been referred to me by a psychiatrist because someone had sent him to see a psychiatrist because when he was describing these symptoms of, well, when I hear loud noises, I see things move, you know, people thought it was all in his head. Now, it actually was all in his head, which is not in the way he'd been told it was all in his head. Remarkable. Well, the other, the other great thing about that is it's, it's the uh, perfect uh, description of, of how to approach a surgical problem or any, any medical problem. You, um, you take the, uh, the diagnosis that's being described, you break it down to its component parts and let, look at what possible causes it could be and then search each of those problems and uh, find where something is lacking or where you think the addition might, try, uh, might help, and then you try that, and in this case, it worked. So even though it's a small pa patient population, it really is applicable in, in so many ways, and certainly looks, it's the kind of thought process that we see in your book. Um, has that approach, have you been able to notice that you've replicated that approach as you've gone forward in your career? Yes, um, I think... You know, I would describe myself as a surgeon scientist, physician scientist uh, in terms of my background. And I write a, in my book about a lot of other physician scientists. And, and by the way, what I did for the vestibular system is, is by no means unique in terms of how physician scientists approach problems. You can find examples in every, in every field. And one of the things now as the leader of an academic medical center, one of the things I want to do is to make sure that, that we're training the next generation of physician scientists or surgeon scientists, whatever field they happen to go into, that there are people who are well qualified scientifically, who are making contributions to discovery-based science, and who are bringing those contributions, bringing those discoveries in real time to the benefit of patients. There's never been a better time to do it than now, because our knowledge about the way living systems work, the way the human body works, has never been greater than it is now. And um, I think that there's a high responsibility uh, at research universities, academic medical centers, to make sure that the next generation uh, is going to make even more contributions to, um, to the interface between fundamental discovery-based science and clinical medicine. Well, we're going to talk about all of that. So let's... I'm going to start here with a quote from your book. Um, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. So this is from William Ulcer, who no doubt is a familiar name to most of our listeners. Um, it's quote, the, the custom of society must be changed so that the physician is employed to prevent rather than cure diseases. And this was from all the way back in 1873, talking about the need for yeah. prevention. And we still talk about this today. It's, it's extraordinary. And, and later, I was a history major in my undergrad, so 
I'm the kind of geeky guy who went to your, you know, footnotes in the back and found this paper. And this is uh, from the Proceedings of the American Public Health Association, uh, really nearly a century and a half ago. And it was interesting to see how they were thinking about problems back then. But it's also interesting to see some of the same problems and challenges we still see today. So one here was longevity. We talked about this on this program. All 150 years ago, they thought that really the human life was cut off about 100 years, which we still haven't even gotten the average up to that now in 2020. And here they said the limitation of life is fixed by the laws governing development, growth, maintenance, and decay. Um, this is a length of life to which every man has an inherent right. It's, it's an amazing statement. They go on to speculate how some people could live to 110, but that's probably going to be it. And really, you know, we're talking about prevention. We're talking about um, human longevity. Some things have not changed at all in all this time. But I think we look at, we're looking at some enormous potential with the idea of something called precision health. So that's the title of your book. I think it's helpful to start. Give us your definition of precision health and how you think about this. Thank you. Uh, my definition of precision health is about how to achieve health care rather than exclusively sick care. We've all heard about precision medicine, and precision medicine is about using the enablers of genomics and data science to treat severe acute diseases like cancer and heart disease. And for sure today, if we have cancer, we want precision medicine. We want treatments tailored to the molecular and genetic characteristics of our tumor and also of our overall health status. Um, but wouldn't it be great if we could apply those same enablers of genomics and data science to predict and prevent disease? Because we know that if we're able to predict our propensity for disease, we're oftentimes able to do things that prevent the disease from developing, or if we can't prevent it, we're able to diagnose it much earlier and therefore treat it much more effectively. The goal of precision health, therefore, is healthcare. It's maintaining health. Uh, the goal of precision medicine is sick care, how to treat us when we get sick. The two are complementary, and you can view precision medicine as a subset of precision health in that we view the three pillars of precision health to be predict, prevent, and cure, but in that order. Again, because if we focus a lot more attention, uh, both in our delivery system and also in the science we do, if we focus more att attention on predicting and preventing disease, the outcomes ultimately are going to be better. And what I, I do in the book is to, um, I, I talk a little bit about the determinants of health, which also very much fit into this, uh, this need to focus more attention on predicting and preventing disease, because roughly 70% of the determinants of health, or you can look at it the other way, the determinants of disease, roughly 70% of those determinants are related to social, behavioral, and environmental factors. And we classically in the United States have devoted far less attention to those social, behavioral, and environmental determinants than we have to the medical care we receive and our genetics, which is really 30% of our overall picture of health. What we therefore need to do is to not back away from our commitment to ultra-specialized treatments and um, to analyzing our genetic propensity for diseases and the genetic components of disease. We don't want to back away from that, but 
we want to devote more attention to social, behavioral, environmental determinants of health. It's a sad fact today that in the United States, the zip code in which a person live, lives is more determinant of his or her health outcome than is the person's genetic code. And um, we can do better than that. And I think that's a challenge for us in the country uh, to do better than that. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples you cite, I'm going to find it really quick so I don't misread it here. There was a 20-year difference in life expectancy between one county in Colorado and one in South Dakota. And that just blows your mind. I mean, you'd, you'd think that access to care, while we know it's not evenly distributed, it'd be a little better than that. Not just access to care, but the life experience all of us have. I mean, would be a little more similar, right. not so different that you have a chance of living two extra decades. It's incredible. Well, let's, um, let's talk about a couple examples here. So you know, one is psychiatry. We've talked a little bit about this on the show. Pace of innovation has lagged many other specialties, especially if we think of something like oncology. And there's new tools, new ways of understanding that are starting to come together now to give us more of a chance at helping people that have struggled with mental illness. This is one example here. We're talking about the idea of a digital phenotype. Give us an idea what that is and why, in your experience, there, there has been a lag in, in mental health, but also why we should be pretty excited, as you said, about the future. I think there are a few reasons why psychiatry and a focus on mental health has lagged behind other areas in, in healthcare and medicine. One is the brain is complex, and um, that that's true both for understanding psychiatric diseases is also true for understanding neurodegenerative diseases where we've made far less progress than we would like to make in the prevention or treatment of diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. Now, what I, there are several things that are going on. First, our, our understanding at a molecular cellular level, uh, the functions of the brain and, and how those functions go wrong in mental illness, that understanding is progressing. Also, in parallel with that, the tools of digital health are being applied now to understand uh, mental health in ways that I think are encouraging. And I talk a bit about that in the book. Um, I talk about a, a company called MindStrong uh, that has looked at things like the patterns of keystrokes on um, a computer or on uh, your smartphone as being indicative of um, someone's overall mental status, in particular, whether or not people are getting depressed. Um, there, I think there are a lot of ways that digital technologies can be used to create affirming social networks or to provide uh, feedback in real time to people on helping them understand their mood or when they may need or want to reach out to others. Those approaches are in their infancy, but they're already showing uh, encouraging results. Another um, area of advancement that I talk about in the book is um, the work done by one of our faculty members, uh, Dr. Leanne Williams, in the professor in the Department of Psychiatry. And um, depression, of course, is a very, very common illness. It has different manifestations in different people, and yet we use this term, we say, oh, this person suffers from depression or is depressed. But actually, there's a whole panoply of symptoms and signs 
that vary from one individual to the next. So the work of Dr. Williams has been focused on understanding how depression manifests itself in different people. And she's come up with a description of different archetypes of depression and then taken it one step further and show and shown that how you know the archetype of depression that a person experiences also predicts the approach to treatment and prevention that will be most beneficial to them. In other words, it's not one medication for everyone or one therapy approach for everyone. Those medications and approaches to therapy can be tailored based upon the manifestations of depression in each individual. That's encouraging. It, it's taking a very complex, multifaceted general symptom, namely depression, and understanding it in terms of its component parts and therefore being able to better predict what can be done to, um, to treat depression when it occurs or prevent it from occurring altogether. So I know you said this is in its infancy, but how would you think this might look? Would this be, when you say keystrokes, I mean, it's a, you know, everybody understands there's cookies and tracking, you know, that's mostly geared towards providing advertisements for you when you're online, but this would look at things that would seem irrelevant, you know, just how fast you're typing when you take breaks. And then presumably you get a warning or a suggestion from Facebook to maybe go see somebody. Then once you go to see a mental health professional, you're not just prescribed Prozac, for example. There's a much more individual approach. It gives an idea how they see this working out right now, and it could change. Well, in the scenario you just described, I think there, there are several things that we want to be very, very careful about. One is that um, all of these activities have to be done with the full awareness and consent of, of the people who are being monitored in this way. Um, there really, really are some, particularly when we're talking about mental health, some serious privacy concerns. So we always want to be respectful of that. Now, that being said, I think there are going to be many people that there already are many people that want to avail themselves of these technologies, but they want to make sure that the data, that their data is their data and that it's not being shared outside of the people that they want it shared with. Um, and that's where I think the ability of the individual to choose how they create a social network around them is very important. Uh, so that if, if they have a spouse, significant other, very close friend that they want information about their mental health or their physical health shared, that that can be done seamlessly but only with, with their consent and their permission. And I think that's something we're going to, going to have to keep in mind, and much more so perhaps than we have in the past, um, as we bring more and more data available for analysis, available for both healthcare providers and for individuals. And that is people need to be involved in deciding how their data is being used. Yeah, I think that brings up... Uh all sorts of other ethical questions as well, and, and, and legal questions too. I mean, it, it seems, maybe you would agree that um, legislation's a little bit behind the curve on this. Have you seen, in your experience, other countries, maybe in Europe, that have a better handle on this or have been more thoughtful about it? it Europe, used to be for data course, protection, for Right, protection. data protection in, in Europe um, is a bit more advanced than it is in, in the United States. I think it's a very fluid area. Uh, the bottom line is that each of us needs to 
understand who has our data and how it's being used, and we need to have a voice in determining how it's used. Now, having said all of that, as a you know, as a healthcare leader, I'm really excited about the potential for improving health once we get data out, once we get information out of the vast amount of data that's being stored in about our health. And, and let me be specific. A decade ago, most medical records in the United States were paper, and they were stored in paper filing cabinets. They were by and large inaccessible, except to the people at, who had access to the paper. Now, we've substituted now electronic repositories, where we've moved from principally paper records to now principally electronic records. And this began with the High Tech Act of um, 2009, in which the government provided a lot of incentives for physicians and healthcare delivery systems to move from paper to digital. But what we really did was to move from paper filing cabinets to digital filing cabinets. Mm -hmm. And that data still remains trapped and siloed within these digital filing cabinets. And we haven't begun to extract the information that exists now in these vast troves of digital data. And until we do, we're not gonna get the true health benefit that a study of that data, the studies of that data would enable us to, to have. Um, a good example would be, uh, for example, a good example where combining data has an effect on outcomes would be the treatment of childhood cancer. For several decades, most children with um, bloodborne malignancies, uh, leukemias, in the United States have been treated on protocols that by and large are national protocols, and the data on the, of the treatment outcomes are shared broadly among the investigators that are managing the protocols and the pediatric oncologists that are treating the patients. Now, fortunately, pediatric leukemias are fairly rare, um, and and you know if if we had a if any of us had a child who was ill with a severe disease like leukemia wouldn't we want the data about our child's treatment shared so that our child could benefit from the knowledge of how other children with similar disorders have benefited from uh, various different treatment approaches yeah no question as a result as a result you know the treatment of pediatric leukemia is very advanced and we've achieved remarkable outcomes. I don't think that would have happened if every center in the United States had independently treated the children at that center without an exchange of information and data across a broad number of centers. No one center would have been able to get enough experience, enough data um, related to uh, pediatric leukemias in order to achieve the type of results that we can now achieve because we've pooled the data. That's one example, but there are many others that could scale in a similar way, and we can improve not only the treatment of severe acute diseases, but also the prevention of the diseases if we had the opportunity to really bring data together and, and get information out of that data. But to do so does require, you can de-identify data, but at some point for many studies, there'll have to be a step that involves some degree of identification. 
And what I think everyone needs to understand is what those steps are and when do we feel comfortable with those steps or when does each of us as an individual not feel comfortable with it? That takes a lot more dialogue with the public than we've traditionally had in the past about how health-related data is being used or could be used to improve health outcomes. Yeah, not to mention what would be seemingly non-health-related. Again, your social media usage and activity on your computer, that could correlate to something and that could be useful. But in order to pull that off, you have to get permission not only from the people being involved, but sometimes companies like Google and Apple because that information is within their storage, it's proprietary to them. It does become much more complex. I mean, do you think, you know, we could spend two hours talking about this, but does this look more like you have a legal right to your data and it's got an anonymized identification number without your name? What have you seen proposed that would be most useful here? There's been quite a bit of legislation and also regulations based upon that legislation related to the topic of who owns data. It's it's a bit complex, but in a nutshell, each of us owns our data uh, about our health. Uh, the 21st Century Cures Act helped to clarify that and make it clear that when you or I makes a request for our data to any healthcare provider, they have to comply with that request and get us the data. Um, there are now regulations being proposed by the Office of National Coordinator for Health Information Technology um, that would, would take that several steps further and make sure that the way you and I are furnished information is in, is in a user-friendly and, and intercompatible format so that we can freely share information among different healthcare providers uh, without, uh, without a lot of extra effort. You know, healthcare today is, we're the only sector of the economy, the only industry, if you will, that still uses fax machines and DVD discs for transmitting information. I mean, it's it's hard to believe, but it unfortunately is the case. And we should be able to move beyond that. Now, there's some legitimate concerns, again, about the security of data and protecting privacy, but I believe we can keep data secure and ensure privacy and make data, health data, a lot more interoperable than it is today. And I think that's the, the goal of uh, the uh, regulatory changes that the ONC uh, are proposing. Um, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll, see where, we'll see where it goes. We're going to bounce around a little bit here. I, I don't want to forget to touch on this because this, I was not familiar with this at all, but I found it fascinating. This is what uh, you termed citizen scientists. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Keith and I sometimes, you know, we have real jobs, but we like to, you know, think of ourselves as maybe citizen journalists doing the podcast. And if something's too big, we'll invite a journalist on to talk to us. But this, I, maybe Lloyd's because I don't play a lot of video games. I, I wasn't aware of this, but tell us about this uh, company called Eterna and the role that just everyday folks have played in making real, real advances here in, in um, diagnosis and, and understanding of biology. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? Um, the it, it's the brainchild of one of our faculty members, um, Dr. Riju Das, who um, the structure of RNA, which is um, the part of our 
how we transmit our genetic information, how that information goes from our genes to making protein. The structure of RNAs is very complex. And um, he, he reasoned that, well, shouldn't we open this up? Uh, let others suggest structures. And then we in our lab can do the experiments to test whether those structures are accurate. So it's essentially using crowdsourcing and, and giving people some basic tools uh, to work with uh, where they can make hypotheses about structure and send in those hypotheses to be evaluated by um, a team here at Stanford. And it's been remarkably successful. And um, just as in other areas of crowdsourcing uh, and, and, and open, you know, open architecture and allowing anyone who wants to to contribute to solving a problem. Uh, there have been some people in the community and uh, write about one of them in the book uh, who've been remarkably successful at that. There are people with incredible talents um, all around. And, and that's one of the things that makes me so encouraged about uh, technology in general is that when it's used appropriately, it has a remarkably democratizing effect. It empowers people. Uh, I mean, before the internet, before you could you could transmit uh, sort of raw data about the composition of an RNA, um, there would be would have been no way for people outside of research universities like Stanford to make a contribution to the science. Now they can make a contribution that's extraordinarily meaningful and they may have never set foot on the campus of a university. And um, that, that to me is one of the most encouraging things about the technology revolution. We've seen technology radically change every other aspect of our lives. We've seen it change the way we order goods and services, the way we perform financial transactions, but it hasn't really changed as much the way we do biomedical science or the way we deliver healthcare. Uh, and I, I think that, that we're about to see that um, those advances come fast and furiously. Yeah, and some of these gamers, if they've actually had their names in published research, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's they difficult have. for me to explain, uh, you know, through a podcast here, but I would encourage everybody to, to take a look at this. It's at turnagame.org. And I'm looking at it right now. I mean, it's it's called a nucleotide mixer, level one of 11. I think it's, uh, I'm just watching a real one in time here, and there's a chat session going on on the side. And honestly, I don't know what I'm looking at, but I can tell there's a lot of activity. And it just blows my mind. I mean, I had no idea there was this kind of collaboration going on. Let's jump, though, to uh, back to medical education, because this is your wheelhouse Good. here. And this is really interesting. This is just starting, and this is also going to scare people a little bit, I know, uh, but <laughs> it's it's worth talking about. This is the idea of using wearables to track physicians, clinicians, surgeons in their day-to-day -day job. So uh, if we think about sports, we, we did a podcast a long time ago with an orthopedic surgeon who had played minor league baseball, and he uh, was frustrated he didn't get enough hands-on time during residency to do just basic stuff like drill penetration through a bone. So he went to Home Depot and built his own surgical simulator and actually published it, and they use it in schools you know, across the world today. But we often use the analogy for sports because most athletes spend most of their time training and practicing, not actually playing. But what many clinicians, when you get out there, your practice time is your work time. It is game time. 
This is more of the idea of looking at everything as simple as hand and arm movements and efficiency during surgery to how many times you're washing your hands, and then maybe even getting to do an analysis afterwards and kind of watch game films and look at improvement. Tell us, tell us what's going on here, Lloyd. This is, this is really interesting and a little scary, to be honest. Well, I, I trained as a surgeon, had a busy surgical uh, career earlier in my professional life. And when I was training, the, um, the training mantra was, see one, do one, teach one. Um, it, yes, it was as frightening as it sounds. And um, we, we got some real-time feedback from our mentors, and, and that was very helpful. Uh, but nothing like the type of feedback that we would want in order to really perform, uh, in order to really improve our skills. In the book, I write about one of our fact, the work of one of our faculty members, Dr. Carla Pugh. Carla is a general surgeon. Uh, she has a surgical practice. She's a very skilled surgeon. And during her training, she was very concerned about the fact that there was no quantification, no measurement of surgical skills, and no way, therefore, to really give informed feedback to surgeons and to the trainees that she was training. She then got a PhD in education in order to study educational methodology and, and technology as applied to education, and began to focus her research career on quantifying surgical skills. Everyone who's a surgeon has a certain inkling of, oh, this person is a good surgeon, this person is not as good of a surgeon, but what does that really mean? How does that translate into movement? Uh, how can you teach people, uh, because most people have the capacity to learn, how can you in a simulation environment uh, provide meaningful feedback that helps people become more technically proficient? And Carla has been very successful at doing just that. Uh, it involves a lot of sensor technology, involves uh, people participating in a simulation lab to really learn procedures prior to actually going to the operating room. That's frankly the way it should have always been done and the way we're doing it now, fortunately. And I think that we're now able to study performance of, and technical skills in the same way that we've studied acquisition of knowledge. I mean, we've had assessments of knowledge-based learning for years. I mean, that's, uh, that's the routine exam, right, but, that, that people take for licensing. But we should be and are becoming much more quantitative and, and therefore much better at determining, well, these are the characteristics of a good surgeon, or these are the movements that a highly skilled surgeon makes um, and these are the movements that a highly skilled surgeon does not make. Once you have that degree of clarity, then you can teach people. And that's exactly what uh, Carla and her colleagues are doing. Yeah, I mean, my understanding in the NBA right now, they have sensors all over the court. and They know the position of every player at every given time and just about every aspect and joint in their body. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So if it's good enough for sports, it should certainly be good enough for medicine. Um, but when they're doing, you know, some of the initial testing, are they, what about physicians who are concerned about their privacy and, and the, the transparency of that, that, those findings? I mean, how are they thinking about that? Well, I think one thing that Carla's observed is that most surgeons want to improve, or if they feel like they're really great, and most 
probably are, they want to understand why they're great. They, I don't think any of us have ever been comfortable with the statement, oh, um, I'm a really great surgeon, or I, I know how to do that operation. I mean, what do we really mean by that? And, and the other thing is, having observed some of Carla's simulations and the data that she gets, it's actually fun to participate in it. It's, you can in real time see your movements and control them better and improve your skills um, just as with any other technical skill or endeavor. There may be some that that object to it, but um, but I think there'll be few and far between. And the goal is not to weed surgeons out or to say, well, we're going to get rid of these surgeons and keep the others. It's to help everyone achieve a higher level of proficiency. And Carla has a lot of evidence that that's exactly what the methods are doing. Would hope that stuff's not discoverable <laughs> in a lawsuit. I know it's, yeah. there's some people yeah. thinking about that, but that's that's a discussion for another time. It's sure. Well, even if not discoverable, you wonder if it's if it becomes a proficiency test yeah. for certification of some kind. And I, I could see for graduation of of a uh, from a residency or something. But I think uh, again, you get this community based, especially surgeons. I mean, I was thinking when you were mentioning that um, you're all people are always picking on surgeons because there's something physical to measure, and uh, not that surgeons don't need that kind of evaluation, but it's the hardest group to, to, um, to get around and to, to convince because we all have that, that um, confidence to say, of course I know how to do this. I don't need some high-fangled machine to show me I know how to do this. Um, so it's always, again, it comes down to what are you going to do with the data when you have it? So it'll be really interesting to watch that evolve. Indeed. Yeah, surgeons just need... Another thing we don't even have time to go into, we'll go to page 130 and talk about this <laughs> pill to restore neuroplasticity to a child's level so they can uh, be a little more open-minded. But uh, that, that was, yeah, that was right. fascinating. <laughs> and, and Lloyd, we're coming to the, you know 10 minutes here, so uh, just one of many things we won't have, have time to touch on. But to kind of bring things back together and, and, and finish up here, there's a lot that Stanford's doing that, at least what I can see, is, is unique. And it's the approach to not only teaching new physicians, but also research, funding, selection of startups, ideas. And you're right in the middle of it, right there in Silicon Valley. So just give us an overview of, of the way you guys handle things, especially uh, we often think of two tracks. We think of an academic physician track that goes into research and then a clinician that just goes out into, into the community. Do you look at that as being a decision that needs to be made early in medical school and you pick one or the other, or should that never be a decision that you have to make. You can always come back to it. And uh, how do you approach this at Stanford? One way we approach it is we, we like to view medical education as being a lifelong process. And I think that's a philosophical change for medical schools, which have focused on what we call undergraduate medical education. That's before you get an MD degree. And then graduate medical education, that's training for residents and fellows in a clinical environment. But really, medical education is a lifelong process. And we, we've engaged people in continuing medical education, and, and, and that's good. But um, we also want to prepare our students during undergraduate and gradu graduate medical education. We want to prepare them to be lifelong learners. When I was in medical school, there was a lot more emphasis on knowledge acquisition 
than there is today. There probably still is too much emphasis on knowledge acquisition today, but there was certainly uh, a lot more in the past. And it, it was really ridiculous. I mean, we, we had to memorize the dosages of drugs. You know, the human brain is not meant to keep that sort of information uh, stored. And now, now well, it could be different with these patients uh, too. That's what your whole book was about. Exactly, exactly. And now with electronic health records, electronic ordering of medications, you get a lot of assistance with that. And that's been one of the real benefits of electronic health records is preventing someone from transposing a decimal point or something like that because the, the software will pick it up and simply won't allow you to give someone 10 times the dose that they should be receiving based upon their weight and other characteristics. Uh, but uh, we need to be be preparing our students that that the way we practice medicine, even a decade from now, is going to differ than the way we do today. How do we then prepare them to keep track of the medical literature? How do we design continuing medical education so it's actually integrated into the practice environment? We have the ability to do that based upon electronic health records. And these are the trends that, that I hope will be pursued even more in the next three to five years from now than, than they have been in the past. So I think that's one fundamental change is move away from episodic education to lifelong education. And how do we think about our roles in academic medicine really as being committed to that lifelong process? Also, back to a point you made, I do think that every practicing physician has the opportunity to be involved in the creation of medical knowledge and the improvement in healthcare delivery. And that comes now, again, from this change of moving from paper records to electronic records. Um, there's Again, this involves privacy, data security, but down the road, we ought to be able to give physicians real-time feedback about, you know, for this patient with this set of uh, conditions, uh, you might want to consider one antihypertensive medication in comparison to another. Uh, there's some of that today, but not nearly enough of that type of real-time feedback for decision-making to physicians. So those are some of the things I'm excited about moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, so, go ahead, Keith. Yeah, so um, one of the... You bring up an important issue, and I, I do really like the idea that of the concept that all doctors uh, throughout the whole medical community will be involved, all practitioners actually, will be involved in the decision-making tree. I think we get worried that um, that all this great stuff is going on in Stanford, but it's all sort of closed into Stanford or closed into the university settings. And the people in the community think, oh, is this something they're going to inflict on us? Or they're suddenly going to come out and say there'll be a voice from beyond that says, treat it this way. Um, a book, a book like this is really important because it, it shows sort of where the involvement is. What else are you doing to reach out at Stanford to make sure that the community physicians know that how integral a part they are in this process? Well, we in Stanford Medicine have a network of care, both on the adult side and the children's side. And I view the physicians that are part of our network to be very, very important to our mission. Um, our clinical departments really reach out to them to involve them in the activities of the department. Uh, there are lots of ways that a primary care doctor in the community, for example, can interface with primary care physicians on our on our faculty. And we wanna make sure that that 
that level of interaction increases even more in the future. That's one way, as most academic medical centers, ourselves included, uh, have networks of care and establishing those interfaces between faculty members and physicians practicing in the network is an important activity going on here and a lot of other places today. But the, the important thing is it has to be, seem to weigh because again, it's it's there are right. interfaces and and uh, yeah, there are always resources you can call. I've got a difficult case. Can you help me with this? But what about the uh, the guy in the community who says I have a really good idea about how to treat this, or I've seen a bunch of these. It just I happen to be in the community. Have you guys tried this? Do you have that kind of access? Are you welcoming those uh, that uh, input from the community into your um, your research and your initiatives? I think we do in a couple, in a number of ways, and, and we're looking at ways of doing that even more effectively in the future. Mm -hmm. But one very powerful way we do what you just described is that we are all on the same electronic health record. Right. A, a physician in the community can send a query about a uh, about a patient to one of our faculty, or vice versa. So it makes for the interaction. If a patient comes to see a specialist. Uh, on our faculty, the note describing that visit, the recommendations get transmitted immediately through the electronic health record to the primary care physician in the community. Likewise, there can be a seamless exchange of information if the primary care uh, provider in the community is acting upon some recommendations made by the specialist. Uh, the specialist can get feedback in real time about what's working, what isn't working. When we set up the network, we wanted to make sure that there was, you know, one health record, one communication stream for for every patient who sees any physician either on our faculty or in the network. So I think that's one powerful way that, that there's a two-way flow of information is if the primary care physician sees that something the specialist recommended isn't working or tries something else that's actually that actually works better. Is a way to get feedback back to our faculty member on a relatively immediate basis. Well, I knew this was going to happen. We're right at the hour, and there's about 50 more things we didn't get to, but that's uh, <laughs> that's what the book's for. So, um, uh, yeah. Thank you. Fortunately, we, we got to close it off, let you get back. But just to, to end things here, Lloyd, give us an, our listeners an idea where they can read more of your work, Stanford, and find your book. Sure. Well, the book is available through um, <clears throat> the common uh, electronic uh, booksellers, and uh, uh, it's called Discovering Precision Health, Predict, Prevent, and Cure to Advance Health and Well-Being. And um, we also have a website associated with the book uh, that has some additional information and a listing of the references and things like that. Uh, so those are ways that uh, people can access uh, the book either through purchasing a a hard copy or an electronic version. I also want to mention that all royalties from the sale of the book go to Stanford University. Um, uh, uh, no royalty comes to me directly. I wanted to make sure that uh, since the book is principally about Stanford people, that um, any benefit from the sale of the book goes um, to the benefit of Stanford. Well, we'll get all of that up in the show notes so everybody can look a little deeper after the episode's done. But that said, um, Dr. Lord Miner, I uh, Real joy having you on today. I mean, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for carving out some time with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. 
Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.